1887, in a letter to an Anglican bishop, a British politician known as Lord Acton, penned these famous words. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. And this phrase is often just shortened to absolute power corrupts absolutely. Some actually attribute this quote to a statement made about 100 years prior uh, by Prime Minister Pitt. Uh, This is in the mid-1700s in a speech given to Parliament. But whatever the origin of this statement is, this is not some new idea that was discovered by British politicians in the last 250 years. Is this not the epitaph that could be inscribed on the tombstone of human history? Beginning with our first ancestor, Adam? Was not this the power play made by Satan in the garden to our first parents? Right? Why listen to God? Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will be like him. You can reign as king and queen over your own kingdom. Self-sovereignty is the greatest lie that, has, that humanity has eaten up. Day in and day out, week in and week out, continuously since the fall. In theological terms, absolute power corrupts absolutely is called total depravity. It's a way to describe the mess that we have got ourselves into. And I think it sheds some light on why for all of human history, people have sought to fill the void in their lives with some type of truth or some purpose outside of themselves. Don't let our secular age fool you. The lie that we are masters of our own fate and the captains of our own soul simply doesn't work. And it cannot satisfy our deepest longings. We saw last week in Jesus' message in the synagogue in Nazareth, he stood up to read from the scroll of Isaiah. We saw him read from Isaiah 61 and 62 and the message that he proclaimed. And then he went on to talk about Elijah and Elisha and how the Lord sent them to just one Gentile when he could have sent them to all of these Israelites. And then we saw the response of the people in the, in the synagogue, first after he stood up to read, they're like, oh, this guy's amazing, wow. And then he kind of goes after him, right? And then they're like, ah, oh, filled with wrath, and they, they want to kill him, right? Well, last week I asked ourselves to put us in the shoes of those in the synagogue. I said, yes, there is a place for relating to Jesus and his rejection, but we are not the heroes of the story. We must recognize our tendency to be like those in the synagogue, our tendency to reject Jesus. We must recognize that. We must see how instead of rejecting him, we ought to receive him by grace through faith. And this is God's gracious work in our lives, to see Jesus for who he really is and to hope and to trust in him. In our passage this morning, I want us to go a step further than that, than that initial faith and trust. That initial faith and trust is in Jesus as the Lord's anointed, the long-awaited Messiah, the only one who can save us from our sins. But let's go beyond that, and we'll see in this passage that Jesus demands a response from everyone who hears his words. And this is going to be a prominent theme throughout Luke's gospel. 
Again, it's not just the initial response of faith in Jesus. It's not just initially saying, yes, I believe. That's obviously a vital first step. But the ongoing response is a call to committed Christian discipleship. It's going beyond that initial step of saying, yes, I believe, yes, I trust, and being committed to ongoing Christian discipleship, which, by the way, is also by grace through faith. So we don't make this distinction that, well, justification is when we get saved, right? That's, a, that's all a work of God and, and his grace. And then our sanctification, that's all on us, right? We just got to try really hard. No, they're both by grace through faith. They're both gifts of God that he works in us by his spirit. So begins, this process begins by recognizing and submitting to the authority of the Lord's anointed. Again, that's the title of the message. So let's go to our text. Let's see how Jesus, the Lord's anointed, demonstrates the power and authority of God and, that what, and then see what response we are called to have. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this reminder of the power and authority of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see that, to embrace it, to live our lives under that authority. And we thank you for the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, verses 14 through 44 here in chapter 4 fit together as a unit. And we break it up for the sake of being able to dig a little bit deeper But we can't just separate this out into neat little chunks. This is why we do expository preaching. This is why we preach verse by verse and seek to be faithful to the text. We need to be able to to unpack all these things. We need to see how all these things fit together. And this helps us in our own reading 
of the scriptures. I've said this before that one of my desires and one of my prayers each week for you is that you will become better students, that you will become better readers of God's word. And not just in some academic sense, not just that you like have these neat little outlines, right? And you just can like figure everything out. But so that God's truth will truly go deep and penetrate your hearts. And in that process, I ask that you would please pray for me and pray for James and Chris and Bill as we bring God's word to you. And as we prepare, that it wouldn't just be an academic exercise for us, right? It's easy to get lost in the details. You're, you're reading all these commentaries and you're just trying to figure out how to like unpack all this stuff. Pray that we would experience genuine heart change as well. Because we need it just as much as anyone else, trust me. Okay, enough prefacing. Let's dive in. First point we see there is that Jesus perfectly and purposefully demonstrates his authority and power. Starts off here, Jesus heads from Nazareth, his hometown where he's just been, down to Capernaum, where we know that he's already been, actually, because if we look back at verse 23, when they say to him, uh, Jesus says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus has already been ministering at some point in Capernaum. Then he goes to Nazareth. Now he's back at Capernaum. And again, Luke is not always, you know, in the beginning of Luke 1, he talks about how he's giving an orderly account, right? But we, in our Western linear thinking, we always think that needs to be like dot, 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 you know, like this This exact linear, Luke is not as concerned with the exact chronology of events as as we would maybe want him to be. Um, He's mostly telling things in order, but sometimes he's going to fast forward and tell something that already happened and then kind of rewind and and come back. So that's what's going on here. But notice what Jesus does. After he's just been driven up to the top of the hill, right, in Nazareth, they're trying to throw him off the hill. What does he do? He goes to Capernaum, and on the next Sabbath, he goes right back into the synagogue to preach, right? He doesn't say, well, I'd better tone my message down so they don't try to kill me like they did in Nazareth. Listen to what J.C. Ryle has to say about this. And again, I think uh, my heart really needed to hear this reminder this week. He says, such ought to be the conduct of all the people of Christ. Whatever the work they are called to do, they should patiently continue in it and not give up for want of success. Whether preachers or teachers or visitors or missionaries, they must labor on and not faint. There is often more stirring in the hearts and consciences of people than those who teach and preach to them are at all aware of. There is preparatory work to be done in many a part of God's vineyard, which is just as needful as any other work though not so agreeable to flesh and blood. There must be sowers as well as reapers. There must be some to break up the ground and pick up the stones, as well as some to gather in the harvest. Let each labor on in his own place. The day comes when each shall be rewarded according to his work. The very discouragements we meet will enable us to show the world that there are such things as faith and patience, When men see us working on, in spite of treatment like that which Jesus met at Nazareth, it makes them think. It convinces them that at all events, we are persuaded that we have truth on our side. 
And the truth is on our side. Not because we're smarter or that we have some special insight that others don't have. No, it's because Jesus is on our side. The one who taught the word of God. Remember what John tells us. That he came full of grace and truth. He could bring the hammer down when necessary, right? And he could come and he could comfort when necessary. And we see that in this passage. We saw the kind of bringing the hammer down in Nazareth, right? And then notice the response to Jesus' teaching. Verse 32. They were astonished at his teaching. Why? For his word possessed authority. In a parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew adds, and not as their scribes. They hadn't seen this type of teaching before. Even those who had formal ministry training did not teach with this type of authority that Jesus taught with. It says that his word possessed authority. It's talking about his his preaching, his message, his teaching. It's the word logos. We see that his word was clearly otherworldly. In the beginning of John's gospel, John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is from the Father, right? His message is from the Father. He came into this world to bring the message, to bring the hope of the gospel, the hope of the kingdom. And this here is Jesus perfectly demonstrating his authority and his power as the perfect son of God. That's the first part. So how then does he purposefully demonstrate his authority and power? Again, this is why we need to read this in the context with the previous passage in the synagogue at Nazareth. In Nazareth, Jesus declared who he is and what he came to do. Here in Capernaum, he does what he said he came to do. This ministry that he's carrying out here, this is the good news to the poor. This is liberty to the captives and the oppressed. This is sight to the blind ministry. I said last week that the, that the time in Nazareth, that is a, it's a paradigm for understanding Jesus' whole ministry. We need to understand that message that he shared from Luke 61 That's a paradigm. That's a a framework for understanding what he's going to do throughout his whole ministry. So here his ministry kicks off with a series of outward demonstrations of his authority and power. The first thing that he does, the first thing that we see is this exorcism in the synagogue where this demon acknowledges that Jesus is the Holy One of God. If we pair that with the statement down below in verse 41... Where the demons say, you are the son of God. There is a recognition here, even from the demons, of Jesus' authority and his power in the spiritual realm. Notice these titles that the demons use. Holy one of God and son of God. This points us back to Gabriel's announcement to Mary in chapter 1. When he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power, same word here, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, right? So the demons are recognizing who Jesus is. They're recognizing the very first thing that Mary was told about who her son would be, Holy, the Son of God. The demons are saying, yep, this is him, right? 
So Jesus goes on, he casts the demon out of the man, and notice his protective care. The man, he, he fell to the ground, but he was unharmed. Again, then, we see a response from those present in the synagogue in verse 36. They were all amazed. So we see this astonishment and amazement. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? Again, it's that word logos. With, for with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Authority and power the word for power here is the Greek word dunamis, which you can probably guess what English word we get from that. Dynamite, right? Yesterday, Ryle was wearing a shirt that has a little uh, dinosaur on it, and it says, Jesus is dynamite. And he is, right? He's powerful. He can't be contained. If a stick of dynamite goes off anywhere near us. You're going to hear it, right? You're not going to be able to escape its effects. Just like a dynamite blast ricochets and echoes far and wide. Reports about Jesus went out. We see there in verse um, 37. Reports and echoes went out from him into every surrounding region. And the word here that we that is used for report is the Greek word ichos, which transliterated into English, E-C-H-O-S, right? It's where we get the word echoes. So literally these reports that went out, it was, it was the echoing of, of the, the message going out, the reports about him going out into all these surrounding regions. So we could say that news about Jesus echoed throughout the whole land, or as the message puts it, Jesus was the talk of the town, Right? And why is that? Why was he the talk of the town? It's because Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 was being fulfilled as Jesus taught with authority and power. And as he ministered to and cared for people with authority and power. The Lord's anointed was operating powerfully in word and in deed. And people were starting to take notice. The word was starting to spread. We see next, in our next section, there's a bit of a crossover between the next two points in this next scene. Uh, the first, the first, uh, sorry, the second point is Jesus patiently and protectively demonstrates his authority and power. The third point is that Jesus privately and publicly demonstrates his authority and power. So Jesus goes from the public synagogue to the private home of Peter here. In our next section. So we'll see here how Jesus patiently and protectively demonstrates his authority and power starting in verse 38. So how does Jesus patiently demonstrate his authority and power? He doesn't say to people in Peter's home, can't you all see that I've been out preaching and casting out demons all day long? Please just leave me alone. I need some rest, right? He responds to their appeal for Peter's sick mother-in-law. And then here Luke uses the same word rebuked in verse as he used um, in verse 35 where he rebuked the demon and it came out of him he says here uh, in verse 38 or verse 39 that he stood over Simon's mother-in-law and rebuked the fever so Jesus rebukes the fever showing his power over sickness 
his authority and power over sickness just in the same way that he showed his authority and power over the demon. But then his patience really gets tested. Verse 40, it's, it's getting dark, the sun is setting. All the sick and diseased, in, in Mark's gospel it says the entire city was brought to the door of Peter's house. All the sick and diseased are brought to him and he healed every one of them. So we read this and we might ask, why doesn't God heal every one of our sicknesses and diseases? If we are Christians, if we trust in him, why doesn't he heal us in the same way that Jesus healed this entire city? And I think we need to remember the purpose of this in Jesus' ministry. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. This language here of, we talked about this last week, this language of, of good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, this is not necessarily in physical terms. This is not actual captives being set free, right? This is in spiritual terms what Jesus came to do and to fulfill his mission. But this is not, we have to be careful because it's not saying that we're indifferent to, to suffering, right? We're not saying, well, it's okay, like it's just, this is just all spiritual. And so like, you're sick, tough, suck it up, right? That's not how we approach this. We hope and we pray and we long for healing. We long for deliverance from the things that try us in this life, right? But ultimately, we're pointed forward to a better hope. We're pointed forward to a new heavens and a new earth where all our tears will be wiped away, where all sickness and pain and death will be gone forever. I know there's a lot of us who have friends and family who are, are sick, who are suffering, who are struggling with different things. Many of us ourselves rest, wrestle with different health challenges. As I mentioned it earlier, last night as I was sitting here finishing this message, I was really hurting. I was like moaning out loud. Like I just like felt awful. And I needed to remind myself in that moment over and over. The question can't be, why me, God? Why am I sick? Why am I, I got to preach tomorrow. Can't you just make me feel better? Can't you just heal me? No, it causes me to ask, how long, oh Lord, right? It causes me to look forward, to point, to have myself be pointed forward, to, to take my eyes off of myself in this measly cold and to look to the Lord of glory. Literally, I was, I was finishing up. I was just typing the last sentence to the conclusion and I got a text. It, it popped up on my computer from uh, Chuck Walton, who's one of the pastors that's on our provisional session and uh, he's a pastor in Partyville. He said, I've been praying for you this week, brother. And I just started weeping. I was like, thank you, Lord. Like, of all, like, literally within, like, five seconds of me finishing typing the sermon, been praying for you this week, brother. Because he knew Lindsay was out of town, and he just, he said, when does she return? <laughs> but how gracious of the Lord, right, in that moment to remind me that it's not about me, Right? It's not about me. It's not about feeling crappy. I get so distracted by silly little things. And these, for the most part, are first world problems for sure. I need to get my eyes back on Jesus 
who is sovereign and good and who will perfectly and purposefully and patiently demonstrate his authority and power in my life, though it might not be in the way that I would choose. And it's the same for you, brothers and sisters. If you are a Christian, the promise of Jesus is not that you will have a pain-free life. It's that you have a Savior who bore your sin and your shame and your guilt and your pain and your rejection and all the other junk that you deal with in your life. He took those things upon himself fully and perfectly and finally when he went to the cross and hung there in your place. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to communicate to you as lovingly and as firmly as possible. You can't fix your own life. You can't escape the inevitable losses of this life. You can't escape your sin and the consequences of your sin. And you ultimately can't escape death. But there is one who escaped death for you. The response that Jesus demands from you is to repent, to turn from your sins, right? To do a 180. And to trust, to believe And to turn to God. In other words, it's to submit yourself to Jesus' authority over your life. You might not know this, or you might not believe this, but he already has authority over your life, even if you don't acknowledge it. So let him reign as king and sovereign in your life. Confess your sins to him and come to him now. Don't wait. Don't put it off any longer. Second part of this point is how does Jesus protectively demonstrate his authority and power? I want to be careful here because I think I'm kind of opening a, a big can of worms, but this is something that is often referred to as the messianic secret. Uh, we see it clearly here. It's seen in other places in the Gospels. Basically, Jesus tells people, here in this case it's the demons, not to speak and not to reveal who he really is. We see this kind of theme played out a little bit differently in John's gospel. It's this idea that my hour has not yet come, right? When Mary comes to Jesus at the wedding at Canaan and says, hey, do, you know, turn this water into wine. He's like, hey, you know, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. So there's this idea of like, hey, we don't want everyone to, to like understand who Jesus is too early, right? We don't want people coming around because what was happening is they wanted to come and they wanted to make him an earthly king, right? They wanted him to come and reign with this earthly authority and power, and he's saying, hey, it's not my time yet, okay? So the emphasis in most of these scenarios where this type of conversation is happening is that after Jesus is raised from the dead, then people will know and understand who he really is. And it's a little more nuanced than that, but that's kind of the gist of it. Now, I don't want to dig into this too much, but if you're, if you're interested in that kind of whole idea, it's called the messianic secret. You can just Google it. Um, maybe be a little, I haven't Googled it. Maybe be a little careful. There could probably be some weird stuff out there if you type messianic secret. But if you type in messianic secret, look for stuff about how Jesus told people not to say who he really was until he was raised from the dead. That's, <laughs> that's the point. Okay, I'll leave that to you. Um, Okay, and then these last two scenes, or in these last two scenes, privately inside of Peter's home, and then presumably publicly outside his home as the whole city is brought to him. These parallel the last section and the emphasis on Jesus' 
authority and power. So we see in this, again, if you're taking notes, the third point, Jesus privately and publicly demonstrates his authority and power. Privately, in verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. Jesus goes away to be alone with the Father. And Mark, in the parallel account, uh, Mark 1.35, adds, and there he prayed. I think this is so instructive for us. Here we have the eternal Son of God, the one by whom all things were created, modeling dependency and submission to the will of his Father as he takes time out of his demanding schedule and goes to be alone with the Father. We can't even imagine those types of demands, right? Me being alone with seven kids for a whole week, I think there's no comparison to the demands of Jesus having people flock to him over and over and over and saying, heal me, make me well, come heal my, my son or my daughter, come raise my daughter from the dead, right? There was constant demands on him. And he always was seeking opportunities to get away and to be with the Father Friends, how much more do we need this type of retreat from the hustle and bustle of life to be alone with the Father? I've got some news for you. This doesn't just happen, right? We need to be intentional about this. Whether it's getting away for a weekend on a personal retreat, or just getting a quiet afternoon by yourself with no distractions to meet with the Lord, turn your phone off, get away from big crowds, We need this same thing. We need to be refueled and refreshed. And we see that very clearly displayed in Jesus' life. But if you're familiar with Jesus' ministry, he could not stay hidden very long. The demands for his time and attention were nonstop. And we see that in the second half of verse 42. The people sought him and came to him, would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, So we switch back here to the public focus of his ministry. Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. This here is huge. He tells us that the purpose for which the Father sent him, he tells us what the purpose for which the Father sent him is. I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well. This whole chapter in Luke 4 has been about the powerful arrival of the kingdom of God. Think about it. How did this chapter start off? Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness at the beginning of chapter 4. Do you remember what the second temptation was? You can turn back one page if, you're, if you have the pew Bibles or whatever you're, however you're reading your Bible. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The Son of God... Spirit-filled and mission-focused says, Ha! All the kingdoms of the world? That's nothing compared to the kingdom of God which I came to proclaim. Don't give me your all-this-authority talk, Satan. 
I'm the one who's been given all authority by my father. Get on your face and worship him. That's my rough paraphrase of what went on there. Then we see the scene in Nazareth. This is a picture of the kingdom of God breaking in as Jesus claims to be the long-awaited Messiah. We've just seen how Jesus put the Isaiah 61 promises into practice and demonstrated his authority and power as the one sent by the Father to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Next week in chapter 5, we'll see Jesus calling his first disciples. We'll see him start to gather and send them out to preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And this is really the kind of the, from, from then on until, until the end of the Gospels, this is kind of the focus, right? Jesus is preparing his disciples, and he's preparing to send them out. And most of us are probably familiar with Ma- the end of Matthew's Gospel, the famous Gospel, the famous account there of the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his disciples for the work ahead of them. He's about to, he is about to ascend to the Father, And what are the very first words that he tells them? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to close with this thought. Jesus' life, his whole life and ministry is laid, for, laid out for us in the Gospels. It's a blueprint for us to follow. Not exactly in doing exorcisms and healings, right? But in the proclaiming and living out of the good news of the kingdom of God. Of submitting ourselves humbly and joyfully to an authority outside of ourselves. As the J.C. Rao quote that I read earlier as it concluded with these words, he said, when people see us working on in spite of treatment like that which Jesus met at Nazareth, it makes them think. It convinces them that at all events, we are persuaded that we have the truth on our side. And again, I say, we do. Hallelujah. And he is with us always to the end of the age. Let us pray.